I'd like to take a moment to invite the children to come and join me. And I need to sit over there, don't I? That's where I usually go for the children's sermon. So let me take a moment to do that with you down here. This is my special place with you. Some of you might know that tomorrow is a holiday. It's called Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a day when we here in America celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. and all that he did to make our nation a better place. Dr. King believed in God and he was a praying man and a loving man. And he believed exactly what we believe in our church, that God loves every person unconditionally. He believed that every person was created in the image of God. But when he looked around 60 or 70 years ago here in America, he saw that not everybody was treated the same. There were laws and rules that treated people who were black differently from others. He was black himself, and there were certain restaurants where he couldn't sit at the lunch counter. When he went to ride a bus, he was told he had to sit in the back of the bus. He didn't have access to every seat on the bus like white people did. And so as he looked around at that and prayed about it, he decided he wanted to change that. And so he organized a movement along with a lot of other people And they did things to show that the laws were wrong. They didn't hurt anybody. They would go and sit down at lunch counters uh, where the rules said they couldn't and show that they belonged there too. You might learn about it in school when you get a little bit older. We call it the civil rights movement. And I'm so grateful for people like Dr. King who know God's heart of love and who do what they can in a loving way to change our world and make it better for everybody. I look at these two women in the Bible story today. Don't they have beautiful names? Shifra and Pua. And their people were not being treated well by the Pharaoh of Egypt. They too looked around and saw that there were laws that were unfair and treated their people differently. And so they did what they could to show God's love and to save lives and to help people. And that's what all of us are called to do. We know and we believe that God is a God of love and that every single person is a child of God created in the image of God. And so one of the things we need to do is to look around at our world and make sure that everybody's being treated fairly. And when they're not, to do what we can to make a difference and make it better. Let's pray. Gracious God, on this this Sunday, we thank you for Dr. Martin Luther King. We thank you for Shifra and Pua. We thank you for all those people all down the line over many, many years who have done what they can to help all people know your love and be treated fairly in this world. There's a lot that needs to change, oh God. We're still not where we're supposed to be yet, but help us to be loving and brave and to do whatever we can so that everybody feels loved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much.
So this wonderful story of the courage of Shifra and Pua begins with darkness and oppression. As I shared with you a few moments ago, at the end of the book of Genesis, and even in the first verses of the book of Exodus, we see the Israelite people living in peace in Egypt, living right alongside the Egyptians and people of other ethnicities, growing and thriving in the land for generations. But then one day, Years after Joseph has died, years after the Pharaoh had died, after the reigns of many other Pharaohs, a new Pharaoh, a new king comes to the throne. And by the end of the story that we just heard, this Pharaoh has ordered a genocide against the Hebrew people. He has ordered that all male children of the Hebrews be killed. So how did they get from living in peace and harmony to genocide? Well, I think we can hone in on verse 8 and verse 9 and see what's happening in the mind and the spirit of Pharaoh and how he moves toward this place of hatred and xenophobia and racism. It begins, the text tells us, with this Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. That means, on the one hand, that he didn't remember the history of Joseph in Egypt. He didn't remember that one of his own ancestors, a previous pharaoh, had worked side by side with Joseph, that they had a trusting relationship, and that together the two of them had saved the known world from famine. He didn't remember the history of the Hebrew people living among the Egyptian people in peace and harmony. He did not know Joseph, the text says, which to me says he didn't know any of the Israelites in any real personal way. He didn't have a relationship with any of the Israelites, which then makes it easy to see how things develop in verse 9. We see in verse 9 these two pronouns, us, and them. The Pharaoh begins to see the Egyptians as us and the Israelites as them. Look, he says, the Israelites are growing and multiplying and getting stronger. If we don't do something about this, they will be a threat to us. They will join our enemies and fight against us. There's never been any indication so far in the text that the Israelites have posed any threat to the Egyptians. They've never gone against them. They've never pushed against Pharaoh. All that they're doing is growing in number and flourishing. But Pharaoh, in his mind, sees this as a threat. It's us and them. And he begins in his mind and in his spirit to dehumanize the Hebrews to see them as other, as less than Egyptians. And he begins to spread this attitude and this racism and this spirit among his own Egyptian people. It's a propaganda campaign against the Hebrews. Look, they're growing. They're going to be a threat to us. We better, we better keep them down. And so he begins to implement these policies of forced labor, 
of taxation, of enslavement of the Hebrew people to keep them down. And then he comes to the horrible place of deciding to kill every male child who is born among the Hebrews. And to make it an even more cruel policy, he asks the midwives of the Hebrews to carry out this death-dealing policy. So we read this story. We see the development of Pharaoh's mind and spirit. And we know that even though these events took place 3,000 years ago or more, that this same pattern of fear of us and them, of hatred based on racial group or ethnic group or religious group, is a pattern that is repeated over and over and over and over again in human history. Just in the 20th century and 21st century, we can look to Nazi Germany and and the rhetoric that Hitler used to demonize the Jewish people, the propaganda campaign to convince the Germans who were not Jewish that the Jews were a threat, that they were growing, that they would take over, that somehow if this people flourished and grew, it would take my privilege and my power away, which led to the extermination of more than six million Jewish lives. We've seen it in the headlines recently with the Rohingya in Myanmar, a particular ethnic group in that land that is separated and and demonized and suspicion and fear have grown around that group. And God help us, we see it in the history of our own nation. When white settlers brought African citizens onto this land to enslave them and claim them as property, we can see the rhetoric even the sermons of that day, convincing the people that, that those of African descent were less than human. There was a sense of us and them. And there was a deep fear that should they grow in number, should they gain power, it would be a threat to us and to our group. And so even after emancipation, there were Jim Crow laws and public policies put into place to keep black people from buying property, from owning guns, from voting, to keep the people suppressed and oppressed, and to keep that mindset that they are a threat to us. We see it over and over again, played out right here. We saw evidence of it on January 6th, as people stormed the Capitol bearing the banners of white supremacy, claiming they wanted to take our nation back. Back from whom? Back for whom? The sense of fear and anger that I am losing my power and privilege to people who don't think like me or people who don't look like me, to them over there. So my friends, this very ancient story is more relevant than ever as we look around our world today. And so as we asked in our prayer of confession, what are we to do as the people of God? What is our response to this spirit of Pharaoh that is alive and well in our world?
our first response, I believe, is to be as clear-eyed and as honest as we can, to see it and to name it when we see it, to be able to recognize the rumblings of us and them, to name it when we see that those policies driven by fear, to name it when we see institutionalized racism in our justice system, in our education system, wherever we see it, to name it. And to say this is not of God, this is of Pharaoh. This story also invites us to turn with clear eyes inward. I'm invited by this story to look into myself and see is the spirit of Pharaoh at work in me? Are there ways that I unknowingly and unwittingly have participated in those policies and institutions that have kept some down and have privileged me? There's an invitation to look inside myself and see, am I classifying the world into categories of us and them? I have to be honest, as I watched people storming the Capitol last week, there was part of me that wanted to say, who are they? Who are those people who are carrying out that riot? But I know from what I have learned at the feet of Jesus Christ, from what I have learned at the church, from what I have learned right here at West End United Methodist Church, that God loves everyone, that every person is created in the image of God and in God's eyes there is no us in them. So what does that understanding and compassion call me to do and to be and to act? To say yes, we all need to be held accountable and to say yes, we are all in this together. The story invites us to examine our world, to examine ourselves. And finally, as we we look around and see what we see, if we see the spirit of Pharaoh at work in our world and in us, we are called then to call the midwives, to draw our attention to these brave women in this story. One of the most beautifully subversive things about this story and the way it's told, Pharaoh doesn't even have a name. But these two women are given names. We know their names. And we know what they did to promote life in the midst of a system of death. Pharaoh called them in and told them to kill every male child who was born to the Hebrew women. But the text tells us these women did not fear Pharaoh. They feared God. They were in a loving, trusting, courageous relationship with God. And they knew that the God of Israel would never ask them to take life. And that it was their job in the name of this God to help bring life into the world to help life to flourish, to protect it and give it space to grow. And that is exactly our calling, my friends, 
to be protectors of life, to help bring and usher in God's love and God's kingdom and God's mercy and God's justice into this world, to protect and care for the most vulnerable, to refuse to participate in death-dealing policies when we see them. And these women participated in the first act of civil disobedience in the Bible because they refused to obey the Pharaoh's orders because they were orders of death. So we call the midwives and we open our eyes and we look around for signs of where God's life and God's creativity are being nurtured and flourishing. And we go and participate in that life. I can't help but think about all of these hospitals right within a mile radius of our church and how 24 hours a day there are people of every race and every national origin and gender and sexual orientation and political beliefs all working together to bring healing and life to those who are sick. These medical workers who are working together and working so hard for the sake of life. I think about those six police officers on Christmas morning. A beautiful diversity of people working on the police force who put their own lives on the line to save lives. And if you haven't watched their press conference and heard the stories of what they experienced and how they cared for each other and loved each other as they did that life-saving work, I encourage you to go back and watch it. It's truly inspiring. Those are the signs of life. Those are the places that we are called to be, working alongside other people to help the beautiful diversity of God's creation and all of God's people to flourish. So thank you for all of you who nourish life in the classroom, in the medical clinic, in your homes, on the streets, and however you do that. May you know that the God of Israel the God of the Hebrew midwives, the God made known in Jesus Christ is with you and blessing your hands as you do your work. Thanks be to God.